Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Merkel Media. This was all circulating around the base that a giant had been killed, but no one was supposed to talk about it. I saw three long, bony fingers reach up underneath the door, curl up to grab it, and then disappear. When he came over to me, dude, he slithered over to me. And this giant comes out of the cave, and they're all frozen. And he starts running and firing at this giant. But the giant moves. He's got a spear in one hand, and he's running really fast. And spears Dan holds him up like this. Somebody yells, shoot him in the face, shoot him in the face. They basically decapitate him. Got closer, got closer, got closer. When he got about 15 yards away from me, I raised that 12 gauge and I blowed his head off. I feel something pulling at my leg, and I look over, and there are two small gray entities pulling at me. And they're literally, I'm getting pulled off the bed. I reached my hand into this bush, and I touch air. Couldn't breathe, and I couldn't move, because I know I'm seeing a monster. Yep. yep. What's up, everybody? Welcome to The Confessionals. I'm your guest host, Joel Thomas, filling in for Tony Merkel this week as he takes a much-needed break with the family for the holidays. If you have a wild and crazy story you want to share with The Confessionals, go ahead and shoot Tony an email. His email is contact at theconfessionalspodcast.com. That's contact at theconfessionalspodcast.com. Or go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com, and go to the contact section. Any of those work for Tony. Just try to get a hold of him. And if you do, you might find your story as a film under Merkel Media. And as someone who has been a huge part of the film since the beginning, I can tell you that is an absolute fact. So go ahead and shoot that email over, and I might be alone in the woods jumping down a portal chasing the cryptid that you just saw. And lastly, if you're looking for more shows from The Confessionals on a weekly basis, go to theconfessionals.com and hit the Join button to become a member. There you will get access to all the member shows, past, present, and future, and member shows are released every Thursday. Plus, the Tuesday shows ad-free, plus any overtime content when they're available, all right there at theconfessionalspodcast.com or on the membership-exclusive app. So if you're interested in a wealth of additional content, go to the Confessionals Podcast slash join. And finally, everyone, make sure you check Merkel Media's documentary films, The Shape of Shadows and Expedition Dogman, two films which I've had a huge pleasure to be a part of, available exclusively at Merkel.media. Just go to Merkel.media, hit stream now to watch both films. And get ready for more films on the way in 2024, one of which I just got back from filming a few weeks ago, and it was an absolute mind trip what happened all over Kentucky and Tennessee, and we can't wait for you all to see it. Plus, the Bigfoot film in Washington with Wes Germer from Sasquatch Chronicles and the Sasquologist, Merkel Media's first feature film acted and directed by Merkel's head of film department, Joseph Granda. Make sure you check all that out, guys. Now that we got all that good Merkel Media stuff out of the way, let's get into some Nephilim talk. And here we go. What's up, guys? I am absolutely jacked to be here with you today. Tony gave me the opportunity to do this episode, and I've been doing a lot of research on this particular topic of good Nephilim. Whoa, 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 whoa. hold on now. I know your brain's starting to short circuit, and I know a lot of people in this sphere, a lot of Nephilim researchers, probably biblical theologians, would question 
what I mean by good Nephilim. What's exactly what I'm saying? That there was possibly good Nephilim as there was bad Nephilim. Now, I know this is going to be a tough one for some people because of what we've always been taught about what Nephilim are. Nephilim are the products of fallen angels coming down to what most people think, Mount Hermon, having sexual relations with human women to create gigantic beings called the Nephilim, which were before the deluge or the flood, as most people would understand it in biblical terms. I'm not saying that there weren't bad Nephilim. There clearly were bad Nephilim all throughout history, and you can look into other cultures as well when you look at what the Anunnaki, which I think were the fallen angels, created. You can look into Greek culture with the Titans. None of these characters, even in these mythologies, tend to be great. However, there are some instances of there being stories of gigantic beings doing good things, making good decisions. And I think even biblically, we can go to the Bible to show that there's a huge possibility. And I'm going to present a series of different things today that's going to open our minds to think that God's love and grace is much larger than what our little pea brains think that it is. One thing I want to specifically say is I'm not an authority on the Bible. Let's make that clear. If anyone ever says that they are an authority on the Bible outside of Yeshua, then don't listen to them because they're not. Now, I think biblically there are some things that are specific. We know that these things are to be true. It's blatantly clear. The Bible spells it out, and we can take those as definitive truths. But when it comes to historical elements in the Bible, we also have to look at supposition from other documents to try to get or even piece together a clearer picture of what that could be, right? Like, we only have X amount of verses in the Bible that speak about giants. Matter of fact, there's only two instances in two different books where the word Nephilim is even used. Now, we get the word Raphaim used. We talk about the Anakim, the Amims, and we're going to get into some of that today as we talk about some of these good Nephilim or where they could have came from. But ultimately, we don't have a lot to go on outside of David fighting Goliath, David and the mighty men, which we're going to talk about initially today, where they're could have possibly been some good Nephilim on David's mighty men team. And I know people are shorting out because I know how it gets when you start challenging ways of thought that are outside of the box in any sphere, right? You look at Martin Luther, you know, he challenged the church and a lot of what he was fighting for back then, we hold to ourselves as truths or it was a revelation to the people of that time that got us to where we think now. For good or bad, I think mostly good, but that could be said for anything. Anytime we challenge anything outside of the box, and I know even for myself, because I have a tough time, if I'm in like one ingrained way of thinking, it's going to be tough for me to think outside of that. If I've been thinking this specific way for X amount of years, and I'm challenged with a new truth or challenged with an idea that I want to maybe take on board, but then I have to do the research, right? And I don't do any of what I'm talking about today or on any podcast lightly. I do a lot of research. I read a lot of books. There are guys who are fantastic researchers in this field, and I go to what they've said, and then I also cross-reference it with a bunch of other documentations and writers to get a viewpoint that I can understand. And I think that's how we all should do, right? We should never take anybody or any one person's idea or theory as an absolute truth. And anything to do with Nephilim, by the way, guys, are generally theories. Outside of what the Bible said specifically, most of it's just theorizing. We're all theorizing here because none of us are actually going to know. And I think that this good Nephilim theory does have some weight or validity to it. And we'll get into that at the day. And I did bring up David's mighty men or the Jaborim, which is translated in the Hebrew as the mighty ones. Now you'll start thinking the Jaborim is also a name in the Hebrew that's used for giants. We'll get to that in a minute too, but I wanted to put that correlation there between those two that you've got David's mighty men, which is referenced in the Hebrew as Jaborim, G-I-B-B-O-R-I-M. Also, there are verses in the Bible that are talking about giants 
and they're referred to as the Jaborum as well. So you've got two sides of the coin, and I think maybe on David's team, he might have had some legit giant Jaborum that were joined with him. Also, David's Mighty Men were considered in the International Standard Version as David's Special Forces. So David had 30-plus men. It wasn't exactly 30. I know they always call it David's 30 Mighty Men. It was actually more like 37 that were are identified in the Bible. And if you're looking for a list of said mighty men, you can go to 2 Samuel 23, 8 through 39 and 1 Chronicles 11, 10 through 47. You'll find in 1 Chronicles, there's an additional, I think, 12 to 13 names that are added to the initial names that are talked about in 2 Samuel. You'll find that some of the names are the same. Uh, some names are similar, but they are talking about the same person. We will talk specifically today about a few who I think could have been good Nephilim or Nephilim that turned to God and rolled with David. And we were just talking about these special forces of David's, and that's exactly what they were. These were absolute beasts on the battlefield. These would be the equivalent of the U.S.'s Night Stalkers, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Delta Force. Matter of fact, beyond that, but you get my point. Any of these very highly special forces, this is what David's mighty men were. And you're going to see them fight a lot of crazy stuff. Tracking Nephilim or the Raphaim, which were after the flood. You'll see that more often after the flood where they're referenced as these Anakim, Raphaim, Emim, Zuzim, Horims, Avims. You'll see that more after the flood. And in my opinion, and I know there are some Nephilim researchers that would agree, and some of them are, are a little different in how they think, but the Raphaim or Anakim or any of these names I just named were a lesser version of the original Nephilim. Like the first generation of Nephilim, some people think we're in the 30 to 40 foot range, maybe taller. We're probably that first generation. These guys were more in that 10 to 20 to 25 feet at the high end, right? You were talking generally on an average, probably around that 15 foot 13-foot range. This is these Anakim and all these other names I just mentioned. This is what you're going to find more of after the flood. And you're going to find that David's mighty men are fighting these guys a lot or hunting them down because they do battle with these guys. And we'll talk about a few of those stories as we get to why I think maybe there were a couple that were on David's own team. So you've got Jaborim in Hebrew, which stands for mighty men. And that is in reference also in Genesis 6, 4, when it talks about the heroes of old men renowned these mighty men is in reference to the Nephilim as well. So Jaborim is constantly interchanged and used a lot in reference to giants. Now, again, it doesn't necessarily mean giant, but the word Jaborim has been used in the Bible and in other texts as specifically meaning giants. So there is that factor too. And it's all about how it's worded in the Hebrew. It's in context because Joshua, who became the leader of the Israelite tribes after Moses, mentions the Jaborim in his chronicles. The story of Jericho as told in Joshua 6, 1 through 27, talks about it and says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. Mighty men of valor, which is Jaborim in Hebrew in Joshua 6, 2. Now, according to biblical scholars, the mighty men in reference here, Jaborim, the phrasing or the context is derived from the same Hebrew word that Moses used in Genesis 6, where to signify the giants. So Joshua is talking about these giants in Jericho. And I don't think people know, you know, the battle of Jericho, the walls came down and they fell. Well, these were giants known as the Jaborim that were in Jericho. Now it starts to make a little more sense why Joshua and the Israelites needed a supernatural intervention to knock down the walls of Jericho because they had Jaborim. They had giants inside of them. This is not an unheard of thing when Moses, was leading the Israelites into the promised land. Matter of fact, that's why when Moses sent the 12 spies into Israel, the promised land, to get a report back, and 10 of the 12 spies didn't want to go back in there because they saw the Anakim, they saw the Nephilim, they said they were grasshoppers in their sight, that they went to the wilderness for 40 years. 
<laughs> because they didn't trust God. So these giants were very prevalent, and these Anakim were probably the largest and most prevalent ones in the promised land at the time. Matter of fact, it's said that the Anakim were the standard by which all other Raphaim measured. They struck more terror than the Horim, Avim, Emim, Zumims, all the ones that I've mentioned before. They were literally necks above the rest of them. Because in the Hebrew, Anaki, spelled A-N-A-Q-I-Y, is translated to Anakims, meaning long necks, or tall were the sons of Anak, translated Anak, meaning neck, suggesting they were head and shoulders taller than even the tallest of men. So they literally were necks up. Like, yo, I'm next up. They were necks up. These guys were, these guys were ready to go and they dominated the region of the promised land. Matter of fact, Og, so I'm going to speak a little bit about Og here, was one of these Anakim. Now, I'm going to stop real quick because I know there's some people right now that are like, wait a minute. You're talking about good Nephilim, but you're clearly talking about a lot of bad Nephilim. How does this equate to David's mighty men and maybe a handful that could have been good Nephilim? Well, I'm going to get to that because this particular mighty man ties into Og and then spawns off into another mighty man. And we'll talk about how that there's a possibility that David pulled an Operation Paperclip. And for anyone that doesn't know, Operation Paperclip was a secret United States intelligence program in which more than 1,600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians were taken from former Germany to the U.S. for government employment at the end of World War II in Europe between 1945 and 1959. This is a known fact. This is not a conspiracy theory. You can look this up on Google or Wikipedia if you trust those sources, but it's all there. This is an actual operation paperclip where we took, the U.S. did, 1,600 of these scientists, engineers, and technicians who were under this regime of Adolf and implemented them into our system, which spawned out NASA, helped push the military-industrial complex to new stratospheres. And we wanted that. But I'm saying all that to tie it back into David. How better to attack the enemy than to flip the enemy and put him on your side? Is it possible? I mean, David was an absolute genius on the battlefield, clearly. I mean, he was a small boy when he took down Goliath with God's strength, by the way, but he had no fear. But his tactical prowess was next level. And I believe that there's a possibility that there were some guys in his camp that were of Nephilim origin and even cryptid Nephilim origin, which I will talk about one of those two. So I'm going to give you a quick snapshot of some of the feats of David's mighty men because it'll give you an idea of what they were capable of doing. We have 2 Samuel 23, 8 that talks about Joshab Bashabeth, who killed 800 men in one battle with a spear, one spear, like he picked up one of the enemy's spears and killed them all himself. Was that spear an actual spear or a piece of technology? <laughs> we'll get to that too. We have Eleazar, who stayed on the battlefield when other warriors fled and killed Philistines until his hand was stuck clenched around his sword. So here he is by himself taking all of these warriors out with the strength and power of God. So these guys clearly were not only super adept at fighting, but they were also fighting with a supernatural presence with them, which I take nothing away from that when I say there could have been some good Nephilim there. I just think it was David pulling an Operation Paperclip. We got Benaiah which is one of the best stories. He's known for going to a pit on a snowy day and killing a lion with his bare hands. And not only that, in 2 Samuel 23, 20, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabziel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Two lion-like men of Moab? And I know that some theologians want to translate that lion-like to mean just mighty or strong. The only issue with that is lion-like in the Hebrew is Ariel, A-R-I-E-L, and Ariel is made from two root words, Ari, which means lion, so it's for sure lion, and El, which means godlike. So these lion-like men were probably the product of some sort of sexual relations with fallen entities in a lion or, which I've listened to some guys talk about, that the cherubim, because they had four heads, one of an ox, one of a man, one of a lion, and one of an eagle, that these cherubim could shapeshift into one of those four forms 
And if they had sex with a human, they would create a hybridized version of whatever that they were in the form of when they had sex with a human. So it's possible that these lion-like men of Moab were created that way. Regardless of the fact it is biblical and in the Hebrew, these lion-like men were some sort of hybridized being that Beniah took out. Now, this brings us to our first guy up that's possible Nephilim or cryptid Nephilim that was a part of David's team, Ithma the Moabite. He is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 11.46, and all that is said about him is he is Ithma the Moabite, which, looking through the 37 names, he's the only Moabite that's mentioned. Now, again, this could be a stretch, guys. He could have just been from Moab and been a Moabite in the sense of that's what he was. He might not have been this lion-like cryptid or lion men as we've seen throughout other cultures, but it is a possibility. He's the only Moabite that's on the team, so clearly switched sides at least in that facet. So we know that David was recruiting men from other civilizations, not just the Israelites. That fact we do know. And speaking of civilizations, what about one that's not talked about but clearly exists? And that's going to bring us to Uzziah, the Astrothite. And he is spoken about in 1 Chronicles 11.44. Uzziah the Astrothite, Shammah and Jeel, the sons of Hotham, the Ariite. So we've got Uzziah the Astrothite. That's very important because Astrothites are nowhere to be found. We look everywhere for them. I, I've done a lot of digging on this. And the only thing that I can find is a native or inhabitant of Astaroth beyond Jordan. So that name Astaroth really rang off some bells for me, especially when it comes to Nephilim, because there is a verse in Genesis 14, starts in verse five. In the 14th year, Kedileomer and the kings with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Astaroth Karname. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. There's Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth Karname was located about six miles from Idri, one of the cities of Og. So Ashtaroth is where the Nephilim dwelt, the Anakim dwelt. Ashtaroth, this is just the giant city. It's what they were. They were giants. And these giants worshipped Astarte, the goddess of the crescent moon, which is also the equivalent of the Babylonian goddess Ishtar which is also a fertility goddess. But not only that, Astarte and Ishtar were the equivalent of Isis, which is a fertility goddess in Egypt. And that's important because Nephilim researchers will point to Isis or the blood of Isis or the bloodline of Isis, the matriarchal fairy bloodlines of Isis that has trickled down into a lot of these royal families. So this is Nephilim blood. So if we're talking about Astarte, if we're talking about Ishtar, if we're talking about Isis, that these Nephilim worshipped, this Astarte, it was a fallen angel, clearly a fallen angel that created these Nephilim that they in turn worshipped because Astarte, Ishtar, Isis was who created them. And I want to make something very clear when I say that fallen angels create things. They can't create from nothing like God does or Yeshua does or Jehovah. They can't create like that. I think when people hear me say that fallen angels create, they think that they're creating from nothing. No, they're creating in a very similar sense as I can create when I buy a box of Lego. When I buy a box of Lego, I have all these pieces. I can build and create from those pieces and create something. But the pieces were already created at a manufacturer before they got to me. The same thing goes on with fallen angel and DNA manipulation. They're only manipulating, they're only creating from what was already created, the building blocks that were already there. So you have to look at it that way. When I say fallen angels create, when they created the Nephilim, they didn't create from nothing. They actually took something that God made and corrupted it. And that's going to come up very key here when we're possibly talking about good Nephilim and how that's a possibility, how that they could have the opportunity to be redeemed. And I think that that's a piece of it. I think that they came from something good. Whether it was corrupted or not, they came from something good. So why wouldn't have they been given the same opportunities that the fallen angels got before they turned, that we have gotten? Anything with a intelligent brain has been given the opportunity for. They're clearly smart. They clearly can think in a human, even fallen angel way. So why wouldn't have they been given this opportunity as well? 
And I will talk about that. There's some biblical precedent for that. And we will get into that after we get through this David and the mighty men and some of these characters. Now, as we're talking about Uzziah, the Ashtarothite, it does bring us to Og. And Og is in the Bible, who was probably in the nine to 10 foot range. He was also said to be more handsome and larger than almost any man. His bed was 13 feet long and six feet wide. This is all biblical. Og lived in Ashtaroth, his principal city. So he was very bold, very brazen. He was one of the last remnant of the Raphaim, which is talked about in Deuteronomy 3.11. And he's so bold and brazen that he decides to meet the Israelites on the field of battle instead of staying in his fortified city in Idri, which was built 70 feet below the surface of a hill and it was unassailable. But his cockiness drove him to do it, which is a very fallen Nephilim trait. They're bigger, stronger, faster. They think they're just going to beat you. But God always tends to have other plans when it comes to what they're trying to do. And that's how he dies. But the tie-in is he lived in his principal city of Ashtaroth. And this ties into Uzziah the Ashtarothite, which again, we have nothing outside of the fact that these people are from Ashroth, which is a giant city. It's built for giants. This was built for giants. I'm not saying that there couldn't have been regular sized people in these cities. I'm sure there were. And maybe Uzziah was fed up of living with the giants and left. But there's a huge possibility that Uzziah was actually a Nephilim and turned from his ways. And David was like, hey, flip over here. You can be on Team Yahweh, and I can also pick your brain about how these guys tick, because they clearly have technology beyond anything that David and them had. And just one particular verse, and I know that Tony Merkel loves this verse, and I'm actually going to break it down today. We're talking about technology and what they had when David and the mighty men were running up on them. 2 Samuel 21, 16, in Ishbi Binab, which was the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, he being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. That piece of the verse, he being girded with a new sword, doesn't exist. A new, in Hebrew, is Hadassah, which is H-A-D-A-S-A-H. It means a new. Do you know there's not a word for what the Hebrews used for sword? It's just supplemented for sword or armor or spear. Some people have translated it to mace, but there's nothing that that word means. Matter of fact, there are plenty of Hebrew words for sword and spear and bow and all manner of weapons, but this particular verse. So we know that these Nephilim had crazy, crazy technology, technology that we would see right now and we would be blown away with. We don't know how it operates. So why wouldn't David, in knowing that, and I'm not saying David didn't trust God, but we're just talking about tactical battlefield. It's not like God didn't give us a brain to use and know how to work in the heat of the moment, heat of the battle. Why wouldn't David, if there were Nephilim, Raphaim, Anakim, all in the same umbrella that wanted to flip sides, that didn't like where they came from, didn't like what was going on, if we believe that God is a God of forgiveness and grace, why wouldn't David also see that and David say, yeah, come over here, join us. <laughs> and man, we got a little bit of little something here too. I can send off this Nephilim, this Raphaim in battle with my men. And not to say they couldn't have handled it already, but from a tactical standpoint, I could see David totally being on board with that if it was God's will. So I do think that Uzziah the Astrothite is probably one of the best examples of David's mighty men being from Astaroth, being from the city of Og, from the city of Astarte, the fallen angel who also represents Ishtar and Isis, that he, Uzziah, could have definitely been a Nephilim or Raphaim or however you want to word it, some sort of hybrid that joined David's team. And this brings us to our next great example of a possible Nephilim that was on David's mighty men was Hiddai from the ravines of Gaash. Now, I've heard this pronounced a few other ways, and I guess it depends on where you're from and the vernacular that you use, but it is spelled G-A-A-S-H, so I will be saying Gaash. Now, we got a cross-reference where Gaash is at and understand who lived 
in Gash. And how we do that is by going to the book of Jasher, which is an apocryphal book. But that apocryphal book is also spoken about in the Bible. 2 Samuel 1.18. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. I prefer the Berean Standard. That was the KJV. The Berean Standard tends to pull from the Koine Greek and the Hebrew a little better. And it says, and he ordered that the sons of Judah be taught the song of the bow. It is written in the book of Jasher. And the reason why I say that is the song of the bow is an actual poem or an ode to how to use the bow. And it was an actual song that they sang. So the sons of Judah sang this as an ode to using the bow. So Jasher is spoken about a couple times in the Bible, and that's one particular instance where it is referenced in 2 Samuel. And that's why I tend to hold the book of Jasher in pretty high regard. They do talk about giants and Nephilim a lot there, and I find it fascinating. But we're going to go to the book of Jasher to pull up Gaash, the inhabitants of Gaash, and what they were. So we're going to go to Book of Jasher, chapter 39. We're going to verse 14. And on the fifth day, the sons of Jacob heard that the people of Gaash had gathered against them to battle because they had slain their king and their captains. For there had been 14 captains in the city of Gaash, and the sons of Jacob had slain them all in the first battle. Verse 15. And the sons of Jacob that day girt on their weapons of war, and they marched to battle against the inhabitants of Gaash. And in Gaash, there was a strong and mighty people of the people of the Amorites. And Gaash was the strongest and best fortified city of all the city of the Amorites. And it had three walls. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. We got the Amorites. The Amorites are popping up. And guess who was an Amorite? Og was an Amorite. Matter of fact, the book of Jubilees 29 talks about the Amorites as being stemmed from pre-flood giants and were masters of witchcraft, masters of alchemy. The former terrible giants, the Raphaim, gave way to the Amorites, an evil and sinful people whose wickedness surpassed that of any other and whose life will be cut short on earth. So we know that they are the products of the Raphaim. They are giants. The Amorites are from Gaash. And here we are. With another, another David's mighty men to die from the ravines of Gaash. Now, in my vast imagination, I can only imagine Hidai as being an absolute tank. An absolute tank. This dude's living in the ravines of Gaash, where these Amorite Nephilim alchemical wizards lived, which Hidai might have actually been himself in his past life. These Amorite giant masters of witchcraft who have learned everything from their Raphaim fathers, from fallen angels, which they're products of. And we've got Hidai who leaves them to go roll with David. He's clearly an Amorite. The Amorites live in Gaash. That's that's who lives there. And those are giants. From all biblical accounts, I just pulled up the book of Jubilees. That's what they were. And David welcomes Hadai to the team. David's literal version of SEAL Team 6. He's bringing on Nephilim special ops, in my opinion. Again, I'm just doing the cross-references to these other books because all we get in the Bible is the name of some of these guys and where they're from. And that's it. You know, there's a very, very small handful of David's mighty men that are talked about and some of their crazy exploits, which I read to you earlier. But when we're digging into where some of these mighty men are from, it looks like they're giants. It looks like they're Nephilim. And this gets me excited, y'all. And the reason why it does get me excited is because being a Christian, I love the fact that we don't understand much about God. We can only hope to understand a fraction of anything. And the fact that his mercy and grace far surpasses anything that I could even imagine. And to the point of what I said earlier about the building blocks being manipulated by fallen angels, the building blocks are still God's. So if God in his grace and infinite mercy that none of us would give someone else, because I can tell you right now, we would live on revenge if someone did that to our creation. But God in his infinite mercy allowed someone who wanted to not be a part 
of all that evilness anymore or that evilness at all to come and be a part of his team, I think it's highly possible. And it makes me excited because that's something I've been trying to do lately is getting off all this crazy negativity about the world. You know what's funny about Christians in general? And I'm not saying all, but in general, we're obsessed with finding the evil in everything and never looking for good ever. We're obsessed with trying to figure out when the end times are. We're obsessed and living in fear that every little thing that happens in the political realm is going to tear our world apart. And listen, I'm not saying don't be informed. I'm not saying don't be cognizant and aware and teach others and help wake others up that are wanting that, right? Because people that don't want to be awake, don't waste your time. And it also doesn't mean they're bad people. It means that they have their journey that they have to walk through and find God too. We're all in that situation. But the point is, we're so obsessed with finding evil. We're so obsessed with going to heaven. I've never seen a group of people more obsessed with heaven. Why are we so obsessed with something that God never created for us in the first place? Ho, ho, ho. You expect to hear that. He created earth for us. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. He gave us this world to be stewards of it, to be stewards of it. Oh, and guess what? He's creating a new earth for us. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth that passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So John is saying in Revelation 21 that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to be on earth. Why are we so obsessed with finding everything that's evil in every corner and not enjoying what God put us here to enjoy? He wants us to connect with our neighbor. He wants us to love each other. We're so obsessed with fighting each other all the time and fighting each other's theologies and ideas instead of trying to learn and grow together. It's fascinating to me. But I got a little tangent there because I think it does play into this Nephilim theory of good Nephilim. Because if we can start looking at things outside of the box, we can see, man, there's a lot to this that I don't really understand. Now, you may want to ask, is there anything extra biblical and biblical that would set the precedent for God being able to redeem giants? I think so. And I'm going to start with something extra biblical and then we'll get to biblical. But I do find all this very fascinating. One of my favorite books to talk about this is the book of giants. All right, let's take a second to talk about our... Oh, you thought I was gone. Well, I am gone. But they need my voice on this commercial, so here we go. Let's take a second and talk about our sponsor, which is HelloFresh. Imagine this. Farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. That's what HelloFresh brings to the table, making it easy and fun to whip up delicious meals at home. No more tedious grocery store trips. With HelloFresh, you're choosing America's number one meal kit company. And hey... If your New Year's resolution is to save money, eat healthier, or just cut back on the daily stress, HelloFresh is your go-to solution. Embrace your year filled with culinary adventures where fresh ingredients meet chef-crafted recipes, all at a price that's sure to make you smile. But it just gets better from there. HelloFresh knows that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and they're committed to making your mornings brighter. That's right. Every HelloFresh subscriber now gets free breakfast for life. Imagine starting each day with a delicious complimentary breakfast item with your HelloFresh delivery. Now, that's something worth waking up for. Go to HelloFresh.com slash confessionalsfree and use code confessionalsfree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash confessionalsfree with code confessionalsfree. I love the Book of Giants when it comes to understanding this theory that there could have been good Nephilim. And you'll often find the Book of Giants compiled with the first book of Enoch if you buy it, right? Or you get the PDF, you'll tend to see it with it because it goes with the story of Enoch and the Giants. 
And it's an apocryphal book, and it expands upon the Genesis narrative of the Hebrew Bible. And again, it's very similar to the Book of Enoch, and that's why you'll see it compiled with the Book of Enoch. And it was found as a Dead Sea Scroll. So that's how it was originally found, and it was in Aramaic. So for anybody that's looking for it, it's very easy to find. You can find the entire PDF for it. Or like I said, if you pick up the Book of Enoch, you'll find it in there as well. But I'm going to tell you a story from this Book of Giants. It's fascinating. It's been fascinating to me for a long time. And I think it gives some validity to the idea that there could have been good Nephilim. And I'm going to tell you the story about how this goes down with these giants. So you got Gilgamesh, and he is a part of this tale, and he has a prophetic dream, and he interprets the giants not being punished. This results in the giants rejoicing, yet they remain skeptical of the dream's credibility. So there are two other giants, and they have their own dreams, and it further adds to the uncertainty of the situation because their dreams are more of destruction. So now they're all trying to find out the interpretation of their dreams. So to find out what their fate is, they send Mahaway, which is another giant, to Enoch because Enoch is the prophet, right? Enoch the prophet that walk so closely with God, he just slipped into another dimension. They go to him so he can provide some insight on the significance of their dreams. So Mahaway comes to Enoch, and he's welcomed by Enoch, and then he proceeds to explain why he's there. Now, Enoch ends up giving a couple tablets to Mahaway for Shemhaza, which is his father, fallen angel, and the rest of the Watchers, as well as one for the Giants. So one's for the Watchers, one's for the Giants, and he sends it out to him. So Mahaway returns to the giants with two tablets given to him by Enoch. He tells him that the journey went well. Tablets contain all the answers that they sought from Enoch, and the first tablets read aloud. And after the first tablet was read, the giants were aware of their impending doom and sadly accepted what fate was in store for them. Then they proceeded to have the second tablet read in order to gain more clarity of what lies ahead. Enoch warns Shimhaza and the other fallen angels that they will be bound. However, he encourages the giants to turn to prayer and reform their ways as they still have a chance for repentance. Now, that was me paraphrasing what is going on in these fragmented pieces of the Book of Giants, and I'm going to read 4Q530, fragment 2, and it says, verse 12, until Raphael arrives, behold, the destruction is coming, a great flood, it will destroy all living things. Verse 13, and whatever is in the deserts and the seas and the meaning of the matter is upon you for evil. But now loosen the bonds, binding you to evil and pray. So Enoch is telling the giants that they can be redeemed, that they can actually be redeemed if they turn from their ways. And in this book of giants, there are some giants that decide to turn from their wrongdoings because they don't want to die in this massive flood that's coming. They know it's coming. Noah's there building the ark. They know what's going down. So some of them do turn, but in this story, Azazel gets binded first out of the watchers that get thrown in the pit. A lot of the giants don't like that. They turn on each other in a civil war and they end up killing each other. But there are some giants that survive and we don't know exactly how or why. We don't know if it's portaling. We don't know if it's under earth. We don't know if some of them hung onto the ark, which I've heard some theologians say too. But regardless, we do know that some made it after the flood. Now, we don't know if some of those giants that turn from their evil ways continued to turn from their evil ways. We don't know how that exactly went down, but we do know that it was, according to the book of Giants, that the offer was given by God to repent, to turn from your ways. So that much we know. We know that according to this book, that the offer was given. Now, you may say, well, it's an apocryphal book. It's not in the Bible. It doesn't hold weight like the Bible does. Understood. And I get where you're coming from. But again, when it comes to Nephilim, when it comes to giants, when it comes to cryptids, when it comes to all the weird stuff, not all that is expressed specifically in the Bible. We just get bits and pieces here and there of what these creatures were and what they did. We don't know everything. We have to go outside of the Bible to try to get some sort of idea of how they operate. And even then, we're probably going to be wrong. But again, these are all theories. There's no such thing as a Nephilim expert. I can tell you that right now. There are Nephilim researchers who have done countless hours and years of research, but no one is an expert on something you cannot be an expert on. We can only say, hey, I've read this stuff and this is my idea, but obviously 
as we continue to do more research, we'll have new ideas and our ideas will evolve. Kind of like Bigfoot, right? We talk about early on, a lot of people thought Bigfoot was some sort of missing link or was some sort of Nephilim hybrid only. But then we start looking into it. It could have been fey folk, could be entities coming through portals. It could be a multitude of different things. And we have to be able to evolve our ideas of what these things are as we grow and learn as human beings, or we're just going to stay stagnant, y'all. We're going to keep thinking the same stuff that we thought yesterday. And I'm just not trying to do that. I do want to push the boundaries and try to understand things as much as possible. Now, that was the extra biblical. Now I want to get into the biblical version. Let's talk about Noah. Let's talk about the man who was said to be perfect in his generation. As a matter of fact, Genesis 6, 9 says, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That blameless in his generation does not mean that he was without sin. That is talking about his DNA being perfect, and that is the DNA that Jesus Christ would come from because it was untainted. Now, I say that to get into why was Noah preaching? Think about that. Noah was a preacher. He was asked to preach to people to repent. We hear about this in 2 Peter 2.5. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness among the eight. I'll repeat. If he, Jesus, God, did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness among the eight. Who is he preaching to? Think about that. Who was Noah preaching to? If his bloodline was pure, well, don't you think that if God wasn't offering any redemption to anyone else, that he would not have told Noah to preach. Who was Noah preaching to then? Well, all these other people he was preaching to had tainted bloodlines, Nephilim bloodlines. That's as much as we understand of it. Why the flood came? What was God offering then? See, I think that's something that people don't think about at all with this story. They just see Noah getting on an ark because his bloodline was pure, and that's where Jesus was going to come from, and the world got rebooted. The big piece of it is, while Noah was building the ark, which they say was over 100 years, while the ark was being built, he was preaching. He was asking people to come on the ark with him. The Greek word for preacher is herald. He was making public proclamations. Why, why would he be doing that to people who would never get on the ark? I think that God always offers us a redemptive path. We choose to take it or not. And clearly, these unclean bloodlines were offered the chance. Even Josephus, who if people don't know, was a Roman Jewish historian and military leader born in AD 37, so really not that long after Jesus had left this earth, wrote a 20-volume historiographical work called Antiquities of the Jews. The book contains an account of the history of the Jewish people for Josephus's Gentile patrons. Matter of fact, in the first 10 volumes, Josephus follows the events of the Hebrew Bible beginning with the creation of Adam and Eve. He does a lot of deep dives on biblical history. He actually provides significant and independent extra-biblical accounts of figures as Pontius Pilate, Herod the Great, John the Baptist, James, brother of Jesus, and possibly Jesus of Nazareth. So he's very important to the Christian faith as far as filling in the gaps of biblical history. And he talks about Noah being a preacher and preaching repentance to the people. In addition, the Sibylline Oracles, which are a collection of oracular utterances written in Greek hexameters ascribed to the Sibyls, they were prophetesses who uttered divine revelations, talk about this as well. In Book 1, lines 155 through 161, it says, Single among all men, most just and true, was the most faithful Noah, full of care for noblest works. And to him, God himself from heaven thus spoke, Noah, be of good cheer in thyself and to all the people preach repentance so that they may all be saved. But if with shameless soul, they heed me not, the whole race I will utterly destroy. So even in extra biblical text, Noah is talked about to be a preacher, a herald who is preaching repentance to the people around him. Well, all these people have tainted bloodlines. They can't get into heaven. They can't walk with God, right? Well, that's what we hear a lot in these Nephilim research fields. I guess my question would be to the researchers who think that Nephilim couldn't be redeemable. What about people now that have Nephilim bloodlines in them? We talk about royal families. We talk about the 13 bloodlines possibly being from Nephilim origin. 
which a lot of Nephilim researchers will attest to. So if that's the case, well, then there's a portion of us, probably some people listening to me right now. Well, you're not going to get God's grace because you have Nephilim blood. You're tainted. You see where I'm going with this? If we're offered that same redemption, why wouldn't a Nephilim that was born, didn't ask to be born that way, by the way, have that choice too? And this brings me to my next point. I was talking to you earlier about the gene of Isis, the bloodline of Isis, which some Nephilim researchers have attributed to the RH negative blood. Now, I'm going to break down what RH negative blood is, and we're going to talk about how this equates to this redemptive nature of a Nephilim. So the RH blood group system is a human blood group system. It contains proteins on the surface of red blood cells. So you've got these antigens that are on the outside of your blood. There's like 50 antigens right now, which five antigens, DC, small c, E, and E, small e, are the most important. RHD is the status of an individual who is normally described with a positive or negative suffix. So say you got A-type blood, you have A negative or A positive. That positive or negative is your RH factor. So I'm just getting that out of the way so people understand what this RH negative blood type is. Now, this RH negative blood type is only in 15% of the world's population with the D antigen absent in their veins. So it's not very prominent, but it's got some weird things that come along with it. One being women. If a woman has an RH negative blood and becomes pregnant with an RH positive baby, her body will produce antigens signaling to her immune system that her fetus is toxic. So the woman's own body will kill the fetus unless there are antigens that are implemented into her system, which they can do in the hospitals. But that is one thing that happens. So some researchers have tied this to saying that humans that have this negative blood type have interbred with something. Now, there's some people in the ancient alien sphere think it's greys, think it's reptilians. That's the bloodlines. I tend to think that these hybrid bloodlines are of Nephilim fallen angels. So that is where this RH negative blood comes from. And you're going to hear this a lot if you haven't already in Nephilim research fields. It's very, very popular topic. You're going to hear that when it's talking about the bloodline of Isis, the gene of Isis, this matriarchal fairy bloodline. Gary Wayne talks about this a lot. If you get an opportunity, go read his Genesis 6 conspiracy book, and he's got part two as well. But he gets into depth about that, and he talks about how it's attributed to the RH negative blood type. It's produced largely in Caucasians with the highest concentration found in a small region on the Iberian Peninsula between France and Spain, known as the Basque region. And it's straddling the Pyrenees Mountains, which is, eh, it's very Nephilim-like. They love the mountains, love to hide. Up to 40% of this population is RH negative. And that is not the only distinguishing feature of the region. These people from the Basque region also speak in an indigenous Indo-European language that is unlike any other tongue in the world. It doesn't represent anything European, anything close by. It could be a derivative of a fallen tongue. Maybe Enochian, but we don't have John D. or Edward Kelly around anymore to ask. <laughs> and I'm just theorizing about what their dialect could be, but it is odd. But we do know biblically that fallen angels had sex with women, created Nephilim. We know that bloodlines existed after the deluge, after the flood. We know that there are powerful people who protect these bloodlines as well. But that's not saying that there aren't people all around the world that have some of these bloodlines. And things that are attributed to the RH negative blood are fascinating. They're paired constantly with the predilection for psychic phenomena and alien abduction. So a lot of these people that have this RH negative blood are constantly abducted. They have psychic phenomena. They have visions all the time. They have higher than average IQ, lower body temperature, higher blood pressure, tend to have red or reddish hair. I need to check my blood after this. <laughs> 
extra vertebrae, sensitive vision, and particularly sensitivity to sunlight, and elevated intuition. They tend to have extraordinary intelligence with the way that they can process things. And people have tied them into the Paraca skulls, which were found in South America. And some of you may know that from L.A. Marzulli. I think he has a Paraca skull that he's shown. And they're elongated heads, but they were found with red hair and they were connected to the Nephilim. The Rothschilds also have elongated heads, very similar to the Paraca skulls. So it's not too much of a stretch to say this royal family has this RH negative blood type. So here's the question that I'm going to ask after breaking down this RH negative blood type that biblical Nephilim researchers have attributed to Nephilim bloodlines. Well, I guess those people can't be redeemed because the Nephilim of old were immediately doomed, right? That's according to some researchers who are immediately doomed when they were born. I don't agree with that. If people with RH negative blood can't help that blood that they're born with, and they're given the opportunity to have redemption, to walk with God, why would not Nephilim of old be given the same opportunity? I think that they were. And I think today, as we were able to navigate David and the mighty men, maybe having some Nephilim assassins on the squad. We know from the book of giants, Enoch telling Mahaway and Gilgamesh, giving them the tablets that came from God saying that if they repented and turned from their sins, they would be saved. We know that Noah was preaching to literal Nephilim and people of Nephilim bloodlines to repent. The opportunity was given. Were there Nephilim that took God's offer that woke up? Maybe even being a kid, you know how like we have kids and our kids, you know, rebel against us. Well, what if there were Nephilim kids that rebelled in a good way? Like, I don't want to eat people. I don't want to do this stuff. I think it's highly possible. And I think that thinking about God in a way that our minds cannot even fathom is important. I think that's how that we can connect better to other people and not dehumanize other people that think differently than us. And listen, I know there's some people that'll hear this that will immediately get angry and immediately start screaming the classic Christian phrase, false prophet trying to lead us astray. I'm going to quote a verse, 1 John 4, 1, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Try the spirits. Try the spirits on even what I've said here today. I encourage that. Don't take what I'm saying as word. We shouldn't do that for anybody. We should hear information. We should go to God with that information. And we should do our own research that we can connect to the information and come to our own conclusion. Because here, at the end of the day, if someone thinks differently or has a different idea than us, it doesn't mean they're going to hell. It doesn't mean they're trying to lead somebody astray either. Could be we're wrong. Could be they're wrong. But I think... As we try the spirits, as John 4, 1 says, we're going to find there's a lot about this world we don't really know. And there's a wider world that God has for us to see that's open for us if we want to take it. And in saying that, guys, I had an absolute blast today on this episode. I've done a ton of research on this topic. I was able to touch on a lot of the main points that I wanted to touch on, but there's a lot of other stuff that's going on with this too, but it will also tie into future episodes of a new podcast I have coming in the very near future. Speaking of which, if you want to hear some crazy theories about biblical dogmen, redeemable dogmen, check me out this Thursday in the members only section of the Confessionals podcast. You heard me say it earlier. All you got to do is go to the confessionalspodcast.com, hit join. I'm going to be joined by two other guys. I won't tell you who they are, but both of them are no stranger to the Confessionals and they have brought some great information. And we're going to do about a two hour breakdown on biblical dogmen and how that there were tribes of dogmen that were good, and some of them were redeemed, according to history. Again, guys, I had an absolute blast today. If you're looking to find any of my work or anything I do, go to linktree slash Joel Thomas Media. All of my socials are available from there. So if you're looking to find me on X, if you're looking to find me on Instagram, if you're looking to find any of my music, which is always played here at the end of the confessionals, any of the podcasts that I've been featured on, you can go there. Also, I have two major projects that I'm working on. I can't 
tell you guys exactly what they are yet. They will be released under Merkle Media next year. I'm super excited about them. And that's in addition to the films I'm a part of here at Merkle Media and new music that will be released in the next few months as well. Look, guys, love being here. Love you guys. You guys have always supported me since I linked up with Tony almost two and a half years ago. And I'll say this to the people that may have gotten a little upset with the topic matter of this episode, in the words of a very wise man that I know, the truth will set you free, but first, it'll piss you off. Point their fingers at me